TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, excited over a great week of television, and with me is my co-host... Hey, everybody, it's Nico. On this week's episode, as expected, we're reviewing episodes of Chuck, Cast, Fringe, Smallville, and Supernatural, but phones because it's on a three-week hiatus due to American Idol. But we still have some TV news, right, Nico? We do. Remember last week when we told you about the Help Nathan Save Firefly.com website? Well, CNN did an article about the site, and if you are like me, you probably already visited the site, liked it on Facebook, and are thinking about pledging some money. As it is only pledges at the moment, they are not taking any real money until someone like Joss Whedon or Fox or someone with some entertainment clout takes notice and joins the pause. The article is worth a read, and Dan will include it in the ACC feed, but it is already on our Facebook page, so right. check it out. Also, I just want to real quickly say that ATA is a tremendous supporter of wanting to help Nathan fill it out, and we may do something or put something in the works coming down the line to help him support that cause. So keep an eye out for that. Absolutely. Speaking of our Facebook page, I put up the link to a setting of the observer in last week's episode as well as this week's episode of Friend. If you like trying to find the observer in each episode, I also put a link to a site that keeps track of the observer's appearance in each episode and list them with screenshots. Check out our Facebook page for that link and keep up with our weekly TV news and previews for next week's episodes or behind-the-scenes videos that some of the shows are out now. Yeah, and you can check those out on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube channel. Exactly. There was a Firefly reference in this week's episode of Castle when yes. Castle said, you haven't heard of Serenity? And uh, that was obviously a reference to the name of the ship, which we all love. And the movie. And the movie, of course, yes, which is, is named after the ship. Right. Finally... There's been a report that Misha Collins, the actor who plays Castiel, has been found stabbed to death in an alley in Vancouver. It has been reported that he was tweeting and crying just before being stabbed to death. This crime was witnessed by a homeless man and confirmed two brothers who have not been able to be found for comment. Yeah, and there's all sorts of really weird things going on on the set of Supernatural. Of course, our hearts here at ATA go out to Misha Collins and his family. I don't know why he was stabbed. It's a really weird event, but I'm hearing all sorts of odd things are happening on their set right now involving some fiery creative disputes, and there may potentially be something actually supernatural going on on the set, which is really weird. So, again, it's kind of a really depressing matter with Misha Collins. Everybody in the cast and crew are really feeling bad as well as his followers on Twitter. And we're going to get more into that when we actually get to our Supernatural section of the episode. But for now, we're going to talk about something, you know, 
a little more upbeat and positive. Again, it's a terrible thing that happened to me, Collins. But we're going to move on to a discussion on this week's Chuck episode, entitled Chuck versus the Masquerade. On this week's episode, Valentine's Day is interrupted when Chuck and the team are sent on a mission to England to protect a reclusive young heiress, Vivian MacArthur. Meanwhile, Casey gets an offer from mysterious Jane Bentley. Back at home, Ellie and Austin find an unlikely solution to a parenting problem as Morgan ponders a big move. This week's episode of Chuck had one of the most hilarious Valentine's Day openings that I've ever seen. Basically, it started out with Chuck and Morgan, overjoyed by the fact that they both have girlfriends on Valentine's Day, splitting the apartment into two parts so they can each get the opportunity to show their ladies a good time. And while in the process of wooing their women, Chuck showing off his awesome love machine t-shirt is told by Sarah that for her Valentine's Day surprise to work, she needs the chocolate strawberries that happen to be in the refrigerator. Chuck, being the gentleman that he is, decides to get the strawberries, forcing him to walk in on Morgan and Alex, who are practicing some weird touchless lovemaking, which Chuck, of course, almost screws up by almost dropping the bowl of strawberries. Thankfully, Sarah arrives just in time to catch the ball, but she ends up getting her trench coat caught on the kitchen wall. Having no other choice, Sarah takes off her trench coat to reveal that she's wearing some sexy lingerie, complete with pop-out angel wigs. Surprise. And just as Chuck gets a glimpse of Sarah in her full angelic glory, Casey barges into the apartment with a mission, causing all hell to break loose. What was that? Oh my god. Dad, Pat, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Sarah had this chocolate-covered, so I was... Which is capped off by a good old... Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. ...from Chuck. Later on, while Team Bartowski is on a mission at a masquerade party to protect a heroist, Vivian MacArthur, from a mercenary taking over Volkoff Industries, Casey, probably annoyed by the fact that he caught Morgan a fooling around with Alex, tells everyone's favorite plucky sidekick that he needs to grow up and move out of Chuck and Sarah's apartment to prevent himself from getting in the way of their marriage. At the same time, Chuck, trying to get over his fear of the mask being worn at the masquerade party, ends up meeting everyone's favorite pain in the butt, antique stealer, Bella Talbot, who has stolen Dean Winchester's car. Somebody stole my car! Hey, 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 calm down. Dean. I have calmed down. Somebody stole my car. Whoa, Dean. Hey, 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 hey. Take it easy. The 67 Impala? Was that yours? Wait a minute. This isn't supernatural. Actually, Chuck meets Vivian, who is played by the same actress as Bella on Supernatural. And she has a secret that's much more dastardly than a desire to steal Impalas. She is Volkoff's daughter. However, before that freaky Shaw rig music starts to play in your head, Just relax. It's all over now. Vivian doesn't appear to be a bad guy, yet she is more or less in a similar place as Chuck back in season one, having no idea what to do with her life. And Chuck tries to help her with this issue, by explaining everything he's went through over the past four years. But don't worry, just because Chuck shared this 
heart-to-heart moment with Vivian. I really don't think that she's someone who's been brought into the story to screw up Chuck and Sarah's marriage. She's probably just designed to be a nemesis for Sarah. So it appears that this second half of season four is focused on her character. Speaking of Sarah, she gets wind that Morgan is feeling like the third wheel when it comes to living in their apartment, causing her to make an attempt at forming a connection with Morgan. Now with this whole thing, I have to give credit to the poor girl for trying so hard to show that she has an understanding of nerd culture. I know better than anybody that it was wrong for her to have that little fun moment where she played with the Han Solo and Chewbacca action figures. So, uh, I know you guys like having these toys around. Toys? Yeah, maybe we can play with them. Bang, bang. Yeah, uh, sorry, sorry, no, 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 no offense. But she was trying so hard to do the right thing that she couldn't help but feel for her, especially when trying to be a friend to Morgan only pushed him towards making the decision to move out. Also, Sarah having the initiative to not just understand, but attempt to be a part of Morgan's Star Wars obsession just shows how much she really loves Chuck. Plus, on top of that, this scene gave me the words to explain how or why Ivastrohowski has beautifully developed this freedom to do so much more with her character of Sarah Walker than in earlier seasons. And basically that explanation is Sarah Walker is a character that's really at her core shy. In other words, she's kind of like a good friend of mine who somewhat comes across this shy because it feels like, or at least the feeling she gives off is that she almost puts herself in this shell where she uses physical actions to express her emotions. Now again, my friend, she's not fighting bad guys that throwing knives like Sarah Walker, but she kind of gives off these visual cues to let you know what she's thinking. They kind of once you decipher that code, this friend of mine is probably one of the coolest people you'd ever meet. And I think this same thing can be said about Sarah Walker, who I think has broken out of her shell through having Chuck in her life by attempting to play with action figures. They're not toys. They're collectibles. Giving her opinion to Chuck when he does something stupid. And by the time this season comes to a close, we as the audience are going to see just how awesome of a person she is and why she is that special someone for Chuck. Continuing on the pattern of awesome, Captain Awesome and Ellie struggle with trying to get their baby to go to sleep, inspiring them to go to the buy more for help. There at the CIA-run department store, Big Mike shows the awesome couple the baby aisle, but they realize that their actual shaving grace is Jeff and Lester's stuffed sheep that plays their cover of Send Me Out of My Way by Rusted Root. Realizing that they have no other choice, Ellie distracts Jeffster as Awesome swoops in and steals the sheep. Going back to Morgan, Chuck tries to stop him from moving out of the apartment, but Morgan has made his mind up, giving us this heartfelt goodbye that revolved around splitting up their vintage Han Solo and Chewbacca Star Wars action figures, which put them on the level of the great dynamic duos that have been on television over the years, like Batman and Robin, Shaggy and Scooby, 
Lois, and Clark. And coming soon, Sean and Gus. Who should really watch on the show Psych if you haven't got around to it. Plus, on top of that, this scene really tugged at the heartstrings for me personally because this is a situation that a lot of my friends and I are going through. And with that, Sarah, who tried so hard to do the right thing in this episode, attempts to get Chuck's mind off of things by continuing their mission, where Sarah decides to pose as Vivian to draw out the mercenary who wants her dead with a foolproof plan. Unfortunately, for the writers to fill up 42 minutes of television, this plan turns out to be not so foolproof, as Sarah, in her Vivian disguise, is knocked off her horse by the mercenary, forcing Casey and Chuck to swing in and save the day, if you catch my pun there. From here, just as it seems that Team Bartowski has gotten the upper hand, Vivian is cornered on her own by the mercenary who she ends up killing in cold blood with a shotgun, proving that Daddy's little girl might not be so nice after all. Moving back to Burbank, Elliot Awesome, finally managing to put Clara to sleep, leads us into a bunch of setup for the rest of the season, and potentially season five, as Casey is approached by NCS agent Jane Bentley, with a proposition that makes it appear she wants him to leave Burbank. But after Casey turns her down, she reveals that the mission is going to take place right inside of Castle, behind some mysterious door labeled Zone 6. And if the CIA being up to no good isn't enough, it turns out that Vivian is up to no good as well, as she uses the locket that the mercenary was after throughout this entire episode to open a secret room in Volkov's office, effectively taking her place as Volkov's hair. So with that, Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode of Chuck? It really is too bad the timing of this episode was off by an entire week, and this episode did not play last week, because this was a great Valentine's Day episode, and it ended up there an entire week late. Right. Regardless, this was a fun episode of Chuck. And really, the Valentine's Day part was only the first scene, so it was not too bad that it was a week late. But it was a really well-done first scene. Oh, it was an excellent uh, scene. And that's why I'm saying it was too bad that it wasn't on Valentine's right. Day, because it would have actually been on Valentine's Day, and probably would have been, you know, fun for some of those people who couldn't go out and do the crazy expensive night and everything like that because they have kids or they have other commitments that night right. and Chuck was their one hour that they got to spend together or something like that. That would have been really funny for them. But that being said, it was a good scene and I'm glad we got to see it even if it was a little late. Now the buddy sequence with Chuck and Morgan this week was excellent and I thought it was great how they compared these two lifelong friends in Chuck and Morgan to Han and Chewie, who were also lifelong friends and companions. Plus, it's a Star Wars reference. That's just awesome. Uh, yeah, we love the Star Wars references uh, on Chuck. Well, we love them anywhere, but especially on Chuck. Yes. The parallel was great because, like Chewie and Han, was Han's right-hand man for so long, Morgan has been Chuck's go-to guy for his entire life, and this moving out seemed like it could be the end of that. But luckily, we saw the final scene where Chuck and Morgan sat on the couch discussing. Things won't really change that much because Monday will still be video game night, and they'll still see each other at work every day. So really, things are not going to change that much. They just won't be living together anymore. And really, they've only had their own place for a, a little bit. They've always lived close to each other, but 
you know, so things aren't going to change that much, but still it's a big step for Morgan because he's going out on his own as soon as he gets out of his mom's place, which is where he's crashing for a little while. Right. Now, as for Casey, this NCS thing seems like a way to keep the story progressing, so that's a good thing. And it's going to give John Casey a more integral role that he's been missing since Chuck became a full-blown spy. Right. So I think it's a good thing for the show, and I think it's a good thing for the character, for sure. It will be interesting to see where this goes, but it should be pretty good for the show, nonetheless. I'm guessing it's going to be a good thing. Rumor has it he's going to have to face a moral dilemma regarding this whole situation. That it starts out as a good thing and it gets out of hand on him. Okay. Yeah, we might see Casey coming back to the Team Bartowski. I think that's going to happen without a doubt. But they're going to make him question his loyalty to his country or his loyalty to family. Yeah. Which I think is a great move. I think that's where we're at with his character now. Yeah, I think that's a great call on your part. I mean, coming up with that idea. I think, no, that's that's perfect. That's exactly where they need to go with him. Because he's always been the strong patriot guy. And now his new job's going to make him question that. I think that's great. Or it's going to put him between his family and his country, which last time he chose country. And this time, maybe he chooses family. And he's not really going to be going against his country. It's going to be that this NCS is, is making it seem like he's betraying his country by not doing something or staying with his family or not betraying his family to go undercover for a year or some something crazy like that and so it's going to give him that dilemma you're talking about but at the same time we're going to see that really he's grown as a man and as a person and it's going to make the right choice for him now which is to stay where he is at and be with his family i also heard another little rumor there that whatever he's involved in is going to threaten chuck's career as a spy that whatever zone six is is going to threaten his career as a spy. Okay. And make him question if he's really needed anymore. Hmm, that'll be interesting. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but that's what I heard. Well, yeah, did you have any other uh, I, I just want to ask you, what was your thought on the villain and the Volkov's daughter thing and all that? Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I, I forgot to talk about that. I don't know, for the whole episode until the very end, she seemed like such Alexei Volkov had kept her out of the life, had kept her pure, had kept her a good person. And then in the end, she goes and finds that she is his succession plan. Right. And she seems to accept that and take over the company, it looks like, or take over the, the network. And that didn't seem like it fit with everything that they had talked about her before. And so I was a little surprised. Unless she's going to try and use it for good, maybe she will. Maybe she'll try and change things. Yeah, It's kind of early to say, but it would be a little disappointing if she just went and became bad without anything happening to her to cause her. We so, struggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if she had found out that Chuck and Sarah and those guys were the ones that brought down her dad and she had had a real close relationship with her dad even though he was lying to her then we could see this move as her taking over as stepping into her dad's shoes and then also going after the people who took him down we could see that but there just doesn't seem to be a motivation behind it other than idle hands Right now do you think she was brought in to be a nemesis to Sarah 
in the way you described her, yes. Okay. I, I think that that's, that would be a very good role for her. As a love interest or a mess-up for the Chuck and Sarah thing, no. I okay. think that that would be the epitome of a stupid decision on the writer's part. And they don't usually make those on this show. No, they're going to scare us that that's what's going to happen, and they, they're going to turn right away from it right away as soon as it's brought up. Okay. Because that's what this show does. They scare the crap out of us that they're going to make a wrong decision, and then they turn right around and not do it. Yeah. So I think we're going to get the threat of it briefly just to give us a good cliffhanger, and it won't be good. Okay. Yeah. The other thing is with this episode was... I really did feel for Sarah a lot in this episode, just at how hard she was trying to connect with Morgan because that's what Chuck wanted. Yeah, you know, it was it was funny when they were sitting on the couch and they're like trying to find something that they have in common or trying to figure out how to hang out just the two of them. Yeah, and it was so painfully obvious that it wasn't working, yeah. and that's why she got up and asked about the action figures collectibles and then started playing with them oh that was hilarious hilarious because it was so not the thing to do yeah the only way it could have been worse is if they were still in the packaging and she had taken them out of the packaging yeah that would have been outstanding if they did that but i don't know if we could have handled that oh you would have seen morgan just like (laughs) dying inside I just like how they're trying to make Sarah become more personable and having her struggle with that. Because yeah. they're giving her, her character the opportunity to have some comedic scenes. Just because things just don't work with her. You know, there's that awkwardness, and I think it's really worked well so far. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about it at the end of last season and coming into this season that we really thought we'd see those moments where she would be the comic relief in a sense because she would just floor us with her metamorphosis over the last season and a half with her being with Chuck. So we've seen a couple moments of that. We haven't seen that one moment I was thinking we'd see where Chuck and Morgan are nerding out and just talking computers or something and all of a sudden she'd come out and just blow them away with knowledge but yeah it's got to be coming you know but we'll see it i think i think this story with her is going to be we're going to start seeing big strides with her metamorphosis to the point that we may meet a new person by the time it's over okay but I i think the progression into that person is going to feel very natural so we'll be good with it yeah i can see that i think what with that you might see her want to eventually set down roots and start a family which at this point we definitely would not be leaning towards with the Sarah character. No, we're not going to buy into that at all. So I think I think that's where they're going to go is you know she has to become less secret agent and more of a person. Yes. And that would work. So yeah, I, I think that's the way to go. And again with a show in season 4, season 5 is when the characters start to evolve. So you have material to work off of when you go into that very frightening season six. Which Exactly. I don't know if this show's going to see that, but well, who knows. But with that, we're going to move on to a show that's probably going to have a pretty long future now. And it's another show where the relationship 
needs to build up into something where maybe these characters can set down roots. But judging by these two characters, I doubt that's going to happen. I'm talking about Castle and Beckett here. But we did get a great episode between them with this week's episode. Actually, ironically, entitled Setup. On this week's episode, Castle and Beckett investigate what it seems to be a robbery homicide, but while investigating the case, found out that the victim was involved in a mysterious conspiracy. The beginning of this week's Castle almost felt like I was watching a completely different show, because the images of Castle being guided down a long hallway by men in radiation suits and being thrown into an empty room was really reminiscent of the TV show that we also cover entitled Fringe. Then, after a title card flashes across the screen, reading 36 hours earlier, we go back to the show that we know and love, complete with some flirting between Lady and Esposito. Everything points to him being popped for cash and car parts. Not everything, baby. Did you just call me? Ooh, did I? The typical zingers between Castle and Beckett that we expect from every episode of the series, and this hilarious scene where everyone ignores Ryan causing him to have no one else left to report to but Castle, who turned right back around to report the news to Beckett. So I uh, spoke with one of the drivers who rents a shift with Amir's cab. Kevin McCann. Uh, no, the other one, Dmitry Voldov. He alibied out, but he had lots to say about McCann. Him and Amir got in a major fight two days ago. About what? Well, Dmitry didn't know, but Amir told him he was going to fire McCann. And where's McCann now? Renting a shift at Allied Taxi. So I'll, I'll tell Beckett then. Could you? That'd be best. Yeah. Plus, to top it all off, we got a reference to the movie that Nathan Fillon should have won the Academy Award for, Best Movie Ever, Serenity, through Martha convincing Castle to make Alexis go with her on a retreat at an acting school, which actually happens to be named the Fountain of Serenity. I have scored two incredibly hard-to-get spots at the Oasis of Serenity. That's fantastic. What is that? You haven't heard of the Serenity? Moving on to this week's mystery, revolving around a murdered Arab cab driver, Beckett and her team begin the textbook procedure they follow in every episode to find his killer, complete with setting up a timeline and posting pictures on the famous whiteboard. But as the clues are pieced together, there is something really off about this case. What the hell's going on here? And as Castle and Beckett's investigation forces them to break into a storage locker, which caused Castle to give a great Raiders of the Lost Ark reference. Think of all the amazing things that are found in storage units at times like this. Ark of the Covenant, Dr. Jones? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was in a crate. We discover that this week's episode of Castle is more than just a standard mystery. As Beckett's radar reader goes off, forcing her to call in backup, because Castle and her may have been exposed to radiation. From here, as Nico knows all too well from his science background, Castle and Beckett are put in quarantine, where they are forced to anxiously await the results on if they have radiation poisoning. On that note, as confusing and disorienting this scene was, it led to one thing being made clear, Beckett's relationship with her boyfriend, and why he's never been around except for, like, 30 seconds in this episode, and we think the end of another episode. Essentially, from Beckett's heart-to-heart 
that she has with Castle of the Seed, the notion that she could potentially die, causes her to reveal that dating a guy who was busy all the time would work well around her career as a detective. But now, with Josh, the boyfriend, leaving to join Doctors Without Borders, she wishes that she could have someone who would be there for her, and she could be there for them, and then they could just dive into it together. Unfortunately, Justice Castle is finally going to make his move. A police officer walks into the isolation room, telling the two destined lovers that they may have not been affected by radiation poisoning, causing Castle to make this hilarious face that said, Come on, man, couldn't you have at least given me five more minutes? As Beckett and Castle return to the precinct, they discover that heroes, Nathan Petrelli, or, in other words, Homeland Security Officer Mark Fallon, has swooped in to save the day. Because as it turns out, this week's murder victim, along with his brother, may have been terrorists who have planted a nuclear bomb in New York City. However, even though Fallon is like Nathan Petrelli when it comes to his relationship with fellow police officers, he changes into Siler when he goes into the interrogation through Beckett being forced to watch as he threatens the murder's victim's wife with taking her baby away. Now, with that being said... The audience that was watching the show with me felt that Fallon threatening to take a mother's baby away might be a little extreme on the writer's part. But my response to that was Fallon had to come across as really cruel because it was the only way that he could effectively be a viable threat to Beckett's incredibly strong character and charisma. Speaking of charisma, Castle sure showed he had a lot of it by convincing Fallon to let him stay on the case through mentioning his relationship with the governor. I'd like to thank you for your fine work on this case. However, I can't have civilians on the front lines. It's for your own protection. Well, my friend the governor will be very disappointed to hear it. At the same time, Castle also showed that he had a lot of heart, too, with a tearjerker of a scene where he tells Alexis he thinks that it's best she goes to the acting school with Martha, even though he previously got her out of it. The only thing is, with this whole situation, Alexis is a pretty smart girl. And I think Castle changing his mind at the last second like that is going to cause her and Martha to come back to the city, thinking something is wrong, raising the ante even higher for next week's episode. Murder, political intrigue, cash payments, and now a mysterious storage locker? Oh, this is too good. Going back to this week's epic mystery, Castle's instincts as a writer proves to him that the cab driver and his brother aren't the terrorists that Fallon is making them out to be. They were just innocent bystanders in a bigger conspiracy. Beckett, agreeing with this theory, sends Castle to meet with Dr. Armand Silva. But unlike his doppelganger on the other side, who tried to kill the Fringe team two weeks ago, his name on this side is Farag Yusuf, and he's the head of security for a Serbian consulate, putting him in a position where he's able to prove that the cab driver and his brother had no knowledge of the nuclear bomb. Thinking that he has done Fallon a big favor, Castle heads back to the precinct, where he and Beckett get reprimanded by Fallon for talking to Yusuf, because it could have almost caused an international incident. In response to this, despite the captain's plea, Fallon throws Beckett and Castle off the case, talking some smack to our favorite mystery writer with the line, The Governor's Never Heard of You. And I don't know about you, Nico, but after witnessing Fallon's actions in the interrogation room, and throwing Beckett and Castle off the case, I started to believe that Fallon was using the pretense of a nuclear bomb to cover up a murder that he committed, effectively setting up the classic 
castle plot device of blowing the mystery way out of proportion and then reeling things back in to the point that the resolution of the murder is just a standard domestic dispute. And in this case, I thought it was going to be a hate crime that occurred with Fallon and the cab driver because he thought he was a terrorist. Surprisingly, as we move into the final act of the episode, my theory was proved totally wrong as Beckett and Castle's decision to continue this week's murder mystery, even after Fallon threw them off the case, causes them to uncover an actual nuclear bomb, which means the governor is going to hear of Castle. Unfortunately, to make that possible, Castle and Beckett have to break out of the freezer container that this week's killer locked them in, inside of. And then they have to track down the nuclear bomb, which the killer drives into the city. And for that, Castle fans, we're just going to have to wait until next week. All in all, this was a great episode of Castle, because it had all the emotion and intensity that we would expect from a two-part episode. But with that being said, I still have this fear in the back of my mind that stopping a nuclear bomb might be too far out of context for the older audience members of this show. Or it's going to create such an epic mystery, the writers of this show are never going to be atop it. So every time we're going to get a big two-part mystery, we're going to keep saying, that wasn't as good as the nuclear bomb and dog it. So I'm really hoping that isn't going to happen. So on that note, with my excitement and slight nervousness over the future for this show, what were your thoughts on Castle, Nico? Ben, this was an excellent episode of Castle that will only be topped by next week's conclusion of this two-parter. Next week's will up the ante, as you suggested, I think it will be because sparks between our two leads heating up in the cooler to keep warm. As for this episode, I think the mystery is right on par with the classic Castle episode and that the nuclear bomb thing is a nightmare situation for any major metropolitan police force, and thus it's not beyond the scope of our heroes. Now, the actual deactivation of said device would probably be done by a nuclear physicist with years of training and probably military training on top of that, but it's TV. You have to suspend your disbelief, or otherwise you're just watching changes in color flicker across your screen. Yes, a writer and New York detective probably would not be the ones to deactivate a nuclear bomb, but you never know. I mean, if they're the only ones around. (laughs) No, yes, you're absolutely right. It's going to be tough to top. But that being said, I think the actors and writers are up to the challenge because we didn't think the episode when they blew up Beckett's apartment and we didn't know... I mean, as soon as they showed the previous in the next week, we knew she survived. But we didn't know for a couple minutes whether she was alive or dead and how that would affect the show. I mean, obviously, we didn't think they were going to kill the main star or, you know, one of the two main stars. But still, there was that feeling of, oh, my gosh. And yet this episode and the triple killer episode, those all have been better in my mind. So I think that they're just giving themselves a challenge raising the bar, and then they'll be able to come back. Maybe some of the, the regular episodes will maybe not look as spectacular after this, but still, every week can't be the best week of their lives. Right. So I'm not too worried about that. I'm going to really reserve judgment on a lot of that stuff until we see part two. Yes, Cause again, that's it, true. It might not be a nuclear bomb. You know, they may throw a curveball in there that's completely different. 
than the way we think it's going right now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when they cut to black at the end of this episode, I let out an audible groan of disappointment because I was so invested in the episode that I was upset when it was over. I'm totally anxious for next week's episode because, as I said earlier, I think we're going to see an even better episode with the conclusion of this two-parter. And I think there's going to be some sparks flying between Castle and Beckett. I saw a tweet from Nathan Fillon that said something about heating up in the cooler and hinting at what was coming and so i think there's gonna be a moment between them in this cooler scene at the beginning of this episode my guess right now is it's going to be what he was gonna say to her before the the police officer walked in and told them that they were cleared on the radiation poisoning i could see that being a possibility i think she's out of it and so she doesn't hear him say it Okay, so she's going unconscious or something like that from the cold. I think they're going to be in there for a while, and to stay warm, there's going to be some major snuggling. Well, for uh, sure. Yeah, well, and I think Castle's going to pull out his lightsaber, cut open an animal, and, you know, store Beckett inside for a little while as well. Yeah. To keep warm. He'll probably say something like, "Uh, I thought these smelled bad on the outside. Yeah. Right on, right on. I doubt that's going to happen, but... (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. That would be an amazing Star Wars reference in a castle episode, but I don't know where they're going to get the Bantha. Yeah, there wasn't any, like, livestock or anything like that in there to pull something close (laughs) to that off. I don't think they can crawl inside the dead guy. No, that's kind of messed up. (laughs) Plus, I think Beckett was taller than him. But that could be the heels. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we're getting a little slap happy here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we are. But anyway, uh, I really do. I think we're going to get a scene in the freezer truck where Castle's going to say what we've waited for him to say, and she's not going to catch it. Do you think he's going to drop the L word? He may. But I think he if he drops know the L word. Yes, exactly. If he drops the L word, she will not hear it because it's too early in the series for that to happen. Yeah. But yeah, I think it, that would be a great move, actually, if they did exactly what you said, where she doesn't hear it because she's unconscious or something of nature. But I'm going to tell you It'd right be- now what's going to make it all go up in smoke. Hmm. It's going to be Alexis because it's going to be kind of like what happened at the end of the Triple Killer episode when he said to Martha, I love you. And then she panicked, and she knew that was what she needed to call the police to save him from the triple killer. Mm-hmm. I think that Alexis is going to say, well, it's really weird that Dad backed me up and that he sent me to go. I'm worried about him. And she's going to convince Martha to take her back home. And then when they get back, I don't know if they're going to still be stuck in the freezer truck, and they think they're going to die, or you know, they think that they're going to the place where the nuclear bomb's going to go off. And they're not going to stop it in time or something like that. I really feel like Castle's going to say goodbye to her as if he's going to die. And that's going to freak her out. And then she's not going to want to work at the precinct anymore. And then your season three finale is, because it was the perfect time to set it up, would be he can't be there anymore because Alexis is too scared for his safety or something like that. Okay. I don't know if that's a possibility, but that's what I'm throwing out there right now. And then I don't know if you jump it forward and say she's left for college or whatever, but something draws him to come back. 
to the precinct at the beginning of season four. I wonder if he records something on his phone, like a, a goodbye message, because he can't get service out of the freezer truck. And then after everything's okay, somehow Alexis hears it because he hasn't deleted it yet. And that could definitely be what drives her to freak out about it and ask her to stop working with Beckett and stop going to the precinct because it's too dangerous. That would be great. That's a great theory, Dan. And the last thing is, I feel like we can't give this episode a full review until we see part two. Exactly. Because we haven't got all the story. But I do want to ask a prediction here. Do you think Fallon has anything to do with the crime? You know, when I read through your theory from the script, I actually really liked that. I didn't think of that while I was watching it. But I do actually like that as as an idea. And then this would have been just an elaborate scheme to cover that up. I don't think it, like you said, I don't think it holds true anymore. But maybe he is involved somehow. Maybe... He's taken over the case for more sinister reason. Maybe there's some sort of government conspiracy going on. Maybe he's involved in the purchase of the nuclear device, and he's going to use it for his, you know, to propel his career by stopping it. I don't think it's going to go that it. far. Okay. I, I don't know. It's a good thought, though. Well, I mean, he's trying to use it. Maybe he's behind the nuclear device so that right. when he stops it, it propels him forward to maybe a Senate reign, a Senate race, and then from the Senate he could move towards the presidency. Going back to the whole uh, <laughs> it's Nathan Petrelli Nathan here. thing, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, I could see a parallel like that being, and then once Castle and Beckett figure it out, you know, obviously he's going down. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like there's going to be a lot of friction between him and Beckett next week, and that they've brought him in to be a nemesis for Beckett not in the sense of catching a killer but on how she does things as a police officer yes because there's a confrontation coming I'm telling you that well they're going to have to pull Beckett back onto the case because she found the, the bomb and now she's not only is she the best detective in New York she's also a witness so she's right. going to have to be involved in this case now Castle may still be on the outsides, but knowing Beckett, she's going to pull all the resources she can, and Castle is a giant resource to her. Well, and she trusts him now. She would have never went along with his plan at the beginning when he said, this doesn't add up. Like, this is not a story I would write. Like, exactly. People would laugh that off, but she's just like, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. So we're going to do something about it. Yeah. And even the captain realized it, too. Okay. You know, he was like, hey, listen, you can't get these people out of here. But again, this was just a great episode. Just created all sorts of just great debate for us to talk about with this thing. Unbelievable episode. Cannot wait to see what happens next. Exactly. And again, we'll get more discussion on this next week. Fringe and Bones will not be on next week, so we'll have a little bit more time to cover this great epic two-part mystery because it deserves all the coverage you can get because it's so good. And again, we always are all about supporting Nathan Fillon, as well as the excellent cast of this show. So with that, we're going to move on to our discussion about another great show that has an excellent cast, but needs, desperately needs your support as much as Nathan Fillon does to get Firefly back. Fringe. With the episode entitled Subject 13.
In a look at the past, the six months after young Peter was saved from the lake are examined. The secrets of Olivia's past are revealed. This week's episode of Fridge takes us back in time to 1985, where we see a young Peter attempting to drown himself under the assumption that it will take him back to the other side. Thankfully, just as Peter is headed towards a watery grave, Dr. Bishop's wife, Elizabeth, jumps in the frigid lake and saves Peter's life. From here, we then cut to a daycare center in Jacksonville, Florida, where we are introduced to a young Olivia, who seems to look out for all the other Cortexafan children involved with Dr. Bishop's program in the same fashion as the adult Olivia that we watch every week. Also in this scene, we got to see that Dr. Bishop was pretty good to the children, unlike the adult Peter's belief in previous episodes that they were abused during the Cortexafan files. Is it Thursday, Miss Ashley? Isn't Thursday early day this week? Ho, 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 ho! Well, I'm going to go home, and you can too. Although with that being said, it does not mean some of the tests that Dr. Bishop performed were necessarily ethical. And he spends most of this episode grappling with the decision to experiment on children, constantly questioning if his actions to take Peter back home have gone too far. Unfortunately, at this point in his life, Dr. Bishop has tremendous pressure on him to bring Peter back to the other side because his wife is tired of constantly lying to Peter about where he came from. Plus, on top of that, Walter has come to the conclusion Peter's parents on the other side are going to come after him because it's what he would do and it may have grave consequences for their world. Again, even though the morality behind it is questionable, Dr. Bishop's treatment of the children is nothing compared to the abuse that Olivia suffers at the hands of her stepfather, which oddly enough, due to the traumatic stress of the event, briefly transports her to the other side. Moving on, Elizabeth, trying to get Peter to accept her as his mother, drives past the field of white tulips, making reference to the season 2 episode of the same name which dealt with Walter's belief in God. I've asked God for side of forgiveness. The specific word, white tulip. Tulips don't bloom this time of year, white or otherwise. But he's God. And if God can forgive me for my acts, then maybe it's in the realm of possibility that my son possibly may be able to forgive me too. Meaning that this show may connect to the theme of divine intervention, similar to another sci-fi television series, Battlestar Galactica. That was referenced in this episode through the board game that Peter picked up during his trip to the toy store. Speaking of Peter's trip to the toy store, we got all sorts of references the toys that Nico and I played with during our childhood, including Ghostbusters action figures. Something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? G.I. Joe's and the popular Atari game Joust. Moving back to Olivia, Dr. Bishop, expressing concern over her black eye, comes to the conclusion that Olivia has the ability to travel to the other side, when put under the traumatic stress of being abused by her stepfather. This in turn causes Dr. Bishop to perform a number of tests to trigger Olivia's ability, which is where his experiments go too far. 
But I kind of understand Walter's desperation in this sequence, because I think he really wanted Olivia to use her gift around people who cared for her, rather than having to trigger it by sending her back to an abusive environment. However, as smart as the man is, what makes Dr. Bishop come to the conclusion that it's not worth sacrificing one innocent girl for the lives of millions, besides his wife knocking him upside the head, is his plan to have Nick, the Cortexafan child, that ironically eventually develops the capability to kill a person with his touch, pretend to be dead, in order to scare Olivia because it causes her to activate an ability, which causes her body to heat up and start a small fire. And as Dr. Bishop and Elizabeth argue in the other room about the treatment of Olivia, Peter waits in the common room of the daycare, where he finds Olivia's notebook, which has a drawing in it of a zeppelin from the other side. At the sight of this image, thinking that he can get back to the other side, Peter decides to go find Olivia. From here, we jump back to the other side. Where we find Walter it reeling from Peter to be taken. And at this point, he appears to be just as vulnerable and confused as the present-day Dr. Bishop on our side. However, just as they seem the same, differences start to become apparent through Walter Nitt's developing alcoholism, causing him to end his marriage, which explains the mistress he had in the episode that took place on the other side two weeks ago. By the way, as a quick tidbit about this scene, I thought it was clever how Walter Nitt's credibility as a world-renowned scientist came from inventing the Star Wars missile defense system that was a project scrapped by the U.S. government on our side. Heading back to our side, while Dr. Bishop and his wife are searching frantically for Peter and Olivia, Peter ends up finding Olivia, where she reveals to him that her stepfather is abusing her. Feeling a connection to Olivia, Peter begins to approach her, but she warns him to stay away in fear of her powers burning him. But Peter says he's not afraid and sits down next to her. Here, the trust that's established between these two future lovers in this moment prompts Olivia to ask if she can trust Dr. Bishop. And Peter tells her that she should say something to Dr. Bishop about her stepfather. On that note, when Olivia felt comfort by Peter sitting down next to her in this scene, she causes it to start snowing, an ability that Olivia attributes to her imagination. So if that's the case, I'm wondering if Olivia's relationship with Peter will cause the imagination she had as a little girl to reemerge from the cold, calculating FBI agent personality she's developed as an adult, allowing her to once again use what appears to be elemental abilities. In other words, Olivia will develop the ability to control things like water, earth, fire, air. Effectively making her an avatar. But I believe Aang can save the world. But also I'm wondering if this ability is what caused the incident where it appeared Olivia's stepfather was killed. Because she did claim in a previous episode that it was her fault. By the way, as another crackpot theory, it could also be possible that the stepfather will return in a future episode. Seeking revenge, because we know that he's still out there, since he continues to send her a card on her birthday. Continuing forward, Peter and Olivia return to the daycare center, where Dr. Bishop's assistant tells Olivia that she has called her stepfather, prompting her to run in the other room to tell Dr. Bishop that he has been abusing her. 
The only thing is, after Olivia reveals her secret, Dr. Bishop comes in the room behind her, making us realize that the man she was talking to was not Walter, but Walternet, because the panic of going back to her stepfather made her briefly cross over to the other side. Plus, on top of that, if Walternet watching Olivia cross over from our reality right in front of his own eyes wasn't bad enough, Olivia ends up leaving her notebook behind, giving him proof that Peter has been taken to the other side. Although, as this moment causes what appears to be Walternet's evil to bear fruit, Dr. Bishop stands tall as the hero he is in one of his best dramatic moments of the series, where he tells Olivia's stepdad that, that this girl is very special to me, and if anything harmful should happen to her, anything to frighten her or make her uncomfortable in the least, I will not hesitate to inform social services. In which case, I have certain government friends who can ensure that you will be facing significant troubles for yourself. Do you understand me? Finally, in the last scene of the episode, Peter, based on the look of worry he saw on Elizabeth's face when he ran away, begins to accept that he's from our side, going to the extent of calling her mom. Then once Peter leaves the room, Elizabeth breaks into tears and pours herself a drink, sending her down the path of destruction, which ultimately leads to her death. All in all, this was a fantastic episode that caused us to look both at Dr. Bishop performing the Cortex of Fan Charles on children and Walter and its decision to start a war with our side in another light. But the only drawback was we did get to see present-day Olivia and Peter's reaction to the revelations that were made in this episode. But I don't think that means that they're not eventually going to find out about them, especially when this episode strongly convinced me that I think Olivia's stepfather is going to come back into play. So with that, what were your thoughts on Fringe, Nico? Fringe was not what I expected when I saw the previews for this episode in the week leading up to the episode. It was the first episode that I can remember that did not have Joshua Jackson or, for that matter, Anna Torv in it at all. That being said, I actually liked this episode more than I expected. I was initially disappointed when the promos stated that they were destined to be together. I don't usually like it when, in the third season, into a show, they try to write in new characters into past episodes, like when Cam was written into how Bones and Booth met, or when they try and go back in time and change something or make it look like two people had met way back in the past. So that kind of thing doesn't normally appeal to me. But in this case, I actually like the way they made this work with Peter and Olivia. Yeah, well, it worked for a while because they're young and they're not going to remember meeting each other because it was so brief. Yeah. And also we know that Peter blocked out a lot of things that happened before the end of this episode. Yeah. Not only did this episode give us the first meeting scenario between Peter and Olivia, but it also gave us some more background on Peter and Olivia and both sets of Elizabeths and Walters. And for that reason, I really thought it was an excellent episode. I agree. I mean, I love anything that's focused on Dr. Bishop. You know that. And so I was looking forward to this from the get-go because I just love the character and the morality he deals with and everything. And this episode right. hit all that right on the money. Yeah. I also like the way they portrayed Dr. Bishop in this episode as well. And 
him being very good with the children and exactly yeah. like you said it did not seem as the adult peter assumed that he was mistreating the cortexafan children it was good to see him in this light after last week when he was contemplating using the amber yeah. and it seemed less like he was such a difference from walternate so this week seeing him actually struggling with some of the tests they were doing on Olivia and the other Cortexafan children really sh- emphasize that difference between them again. Well, and the scene more reason to root for him as well. Yeah, and the scene with Walter and the stepfather at the end further exemplifies the good guy that Dr. Bishop really is when he stands up for Olivia. I think that that really, really solidified in this episode that he's the good guy. Yeah, that's what I like to see. And again, you know, it's going to do things for his and Peter's relationship, too. Where they couldn't make him that bad and abusive, because then there wouldn't be that glimmer of hope that Peter will accept Walter as his father. Yeah. Which, I mean, there was a point at the end of season two where he didn't accept him at all. Now we're kind of going back to that acceptance. But I think we're going to get to the point where he declares, okay, this man is my father. Yeah. You know, I am who I am because of him. Now, I like your theory that the stepfather may return in a future episode. Yeah. I'm not sure what his role would be since it appears that Olivia has moved beyond the hold he had on her and is no longer weak enough to be abused by her. What I think it's going to be is he's going to go after Dr. Bishop. Okay. I think he may try and flick some sort of emotional abuse on Olivia since... That may be his only means of gaining any control over her now. Yeah. But also, yeah, you're probably right. If he were to go after some of the other people in her life and come back as just like a complete bad guy, that would be a possibility. But I'm not sure the advantage or purpose of his return they to this show. They almost made him out to be like a serial killer. Because I don't know if you remember the episode. It was way back in season one. And again performances back then might have not made it as creepy as it could have been but there was an episode where she talks about how she gets a letter from him every birthday right so he knows that she's still out there and that's kind of creepy stalker serial killer like stuff okay yeah i can see that and the other thing is the way he may come in to play is that he saw her display her abilities and so okay. he's psychotic because no one believes him that this girl did this to him. And he's going to say, well, it was because of this Dr. Bishop guy. And so he's going to go after Dr. Bishop. And what's going to happen is the first confrontation, he's really going to take advantage of Walter to really bad to kind of make him feel like he's not the same man he once was. Where, you know, he still has memory of that confrontation between him and his stepfather. And so the fact that he didn't stand up for Olivia this second time is going to bother him and make him feel like he's not the same man anymore. And then in the end of the episode or the end of that story arc, Walter will come on top above him, protecting Olivia and probably Peter. Okay. So, and I also think the show's developed this theme of Dr. Bishop took care of the kids, and now he's at an age where the kids are taking care of him. Which is a very classic theme. Yeah, absolutely. This show really focuses on the father theme. The theme of being a father and what that all means. 
and it's going to get played up even more now that Bolivia is pregnant, and potentially Olivia. We don't know yet. Right. Now, what's your thought on the powers? Do you think that's going to happen? It would be interesting to see if, if some of her other powers start to come back when she gets into a more stable position with being with Peter, and when she does start to open up more and become more childlike, in a sense, that her personality starts to regress back to maybe before she became the hard FBI agent. I do think we're going to see some of the reemergence of those abilities. And so maybe we will see, I don't know if they're all going to be elemental, like you said, but that would be kind of interesting if she could make it snow or could, uh, we've seen her make it snow so she can obviously manipulate water. We've seen her start a fire so she can manipulate fire and she can teleport so she can, or cross over so she can manipulate space and time or at least space. So, yeah, you know, we'll... Olivia is the one. <laughs> the one. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I don't know. The only problem with it right now is I don't see why she would need powers. I totally agree with that. I don't see the need either, but since she's displayed them in the past, maybe they will come back. I think that there's something coming that we don't know about yet. I think there's a bigger threat than Walternet. Because the fact that they made a Battlestar Galactica reference makes me feel like that the outcome, that the way they're going to resolve this Walter versus Walter deal is that they're going to combine forces like the Cylons and the humans did to take down that faction of evil Cylons on Galactica. That's definitely a possibility, but I see it as less viable option than others. Okay than them going head-to-head. -head. But it's a, it's always a possibility. Like you said, and we've said in the past, the show takes so many, you know, throws us so many curveballs, takes so many unexpected twists that we can't honestly predict what's going to happen in the future. We can only speculate. Well, even with this episode, I had no idea that that scene where she went and told Walter what was wrong actually turned out that she told Walter what was wrong. You know, at the end of the episode. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see that coming at all. Oh, me neither. I was like, what? And then he walks in behind me like, what? And then there was a real shocker. So, again, this show blew my mind once again. So that's awesome. Yeah. So I'd like to, with going on to our next show, to say that this episode blew my mind. It hit me on a very powerful emotional level. Again, this show has a tendency to do that. It didn't happen this week, but still I had a good time watching it, and I'm going to miss it when it leaves. And of course, as you all know, I'm talking about the show Smallville, another episode that I guess can be described as the knockoff of The Hangover, entitled Fortune. Due to a gift from Zentana, Lois and Clark lose their memories of their respective bachelorette bachelor parties. As they trace their steps, Clark realizes he may have robbed an armored car, and Lois discovers she gambled away her engagement ring to a crooked casino owner. With this week's Smallville, there are probably a lot of you out there in the online fan community that hate the ground this episode walked on. And there are probably others who are just calling this episode filler. Except for hopefully probably the last ten minutes. But for me... 
I personally liked this episode because I understood what it was. A cast and crew who has become, and this is true, a family over the years, having just played fun. Again, some of you may be moaning and groaning about this concept, but after being on for 10 years and it being the final season, the wonderful people behind this show deserved an episode where they could just let loose and show off their hidden talents that they wouldn't ordinarily use while filming an episode of this show. So with that frame of thought in mind, this week's episode opens with Lois and Clark preparing to go to their respective bachelor and bachelorette parties, deciding to start the night off by making a toast with a group of their friends, which obviously includes Chloe, Oliver, Tess, and Dr. Emile Hamilton. From here, the screen fades to white, and we go to another moment that's been 70 comic book years in the making. A soon-to-be Superman hung over with a lemur on top of him. Stay! Okay, he can just hang tight in there while we figure this out. Yes, I know we thought it was a physical impossibility, but Clark Kent in this scene is totally trashed. Looks like things got a little out of control. Okay, before we go DEFCON 1 on the stag party snafu, let's just take a step back. Whoa. And his house looks like a complete disaster area, complete with the Luther Corp sign in his living room. At this point, Clark ends up finding a bride in his closet, who turns out to be Chloe. And together they discover the bottle of wine that they toasted with was from Zatanna. And she spiked it with a bit of magic, which allowed our favorite man of steel, along with his friends, to get drunk and start doing things out of character. Now with that being said, Nico... I know you hate these episodes of Smallville where something wacky like kryptonite or magic causes Clark and the gang to not be themselves. But this time around it worked because most of the weird stuff that would turn us off to an episode like this happened off screen. Except for the scene that we will get to in just a second. Moving forward, Clark gets a call from the police saying they found his wallet. Sending him and Chloe to Metropolis where they find a huge red limo with the words just married scrawled into the side of it, along with a marriage certificate that's torn in half. And holy matrimony, Smallville fans, to take Chloe's words, it appears that Chloe and Clark have got it hitched. You don't think that we... Exchange vows? Well, I mean... Said I do? Both. Did the deed? Oh, God. Don't say the word consummate. The answer has to be no. And as Chloe starts to panic, Clark decides to super speed off for some answers, where he ends up tripping and falling because he's still plastered. And as he regroups, two girls walk by, hyping the internet sensation known as Emile, or I mean Elvis. At the sight of this video, Chloe heads to Watchtower as Clark heads to a local bar, where he finds Emile performing as an Elvis impersonator, which was a hilarious surprise for those of us who watched Alessandro Giuliani, the actor who plays Emile, on Battlestar Galactica, which was an extremely serious show. However, what was more surprising was Emile being joined in his performance by none other than Tess Mercer. I mean, I heard Cassidy Freeman had some guitar playing skills, but I had no idea that she could sing. Well, I pulled a lot of triggers, shot a lot of good men, broke a lot of hearts, hearts that never will mend. But now I'm at the station, and I've made a new friend, and my friend says, 
So kudos to her on that, especially when it, she did it on network television. Unfortunately, before Clark expresses complete shock over Emile's bad Elvis skills, he is hauled off by the police under the pretense that he made an armored van disappear, which seems to be Clark's doing. Continuing on with the surreal feel of this episode, Lois wakes up on a pair of railroad tracks, which is kind of ironic, to find Oliver lying on top of her, wearing some horrifically colored green suit. In that green getup of yours, we're going to stand out like a hooker in a church. And after some well-delivered and snappy dialogue from Erica Durantz's outstanding incarnation of Lois Lane, through her referencing Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yeah, my cell phone's gonzo too, which is a bummer since this isn't exactly Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And the Lane's family uncanny ability to hold their liquor, Oliver decides that they should track down Clark for help. But Lois tells them they can't call Clark. Sometimes I don't understand what, what, what what's the problem, huh? My engagement ring is gone. Meanwhile, Clark, after getting a pep talk from Tess and Chloe about feeling guilty for being reckless, finds the armored van in the barn, which gives them the evidence that he didn't steal the van, but stopped it from being robbed by its owner, Amos Fortune, a casino owner running an insurance scam who has now kidnapped Emile. Going back to Lois and Oliver, my favorite dynamic duo of this episode, because of how well their sarcasm played off of each other, their search for Lois's engagement ring leads them to Amos Fortune's casino, where they find the ring on Fortune's hand. But when Lois tries to confront him, she ends up getting herself and Oliver captured. Then, as Lois and Oliver try to free each other, we get this great moment where they find the similarities between being engaged to Clark and fighting crime alongside him. But even though this conversation hit Lois's wedding jitters right on the head, it's probably not going to be the most memorable scene between the Emerald Archer and the Daily Planet reporter when looking back at this episode. Not by a long shot. In my opinion, that title goes to one of the most laugh-out-loud superhero moments in maybe what would be history of the DC Universe. Oliver Queen dressing up in drag to escape Fortune's casino. You are an eyeful. You know, like the tower in Paris. You put these other hothouse girls to shame. Thanks, man. Lois dressed up too, but that was completely dwarfed by Justin Hartley doing something as wild as dressing up as a showgirl. I mean, honestly, it set me rolling to the floor, especially once Chloe arrived on the scene and figured out what was going on. Well, you go all in, gorgeous. Back at you, hot stuff. Plus, on top of that, Justin Hartley did not just dance around. He actually performed a fight scene dressed as a showgirl alongside a dual pistol wielding Chloe which I'm not going to lie, was kind of awesome. After taking down Fortune and Clark pulling Emile's head out of a vice, literally, the director of this episode takes things down a bit with one of my personal favorites, a scene between Clark and Chloe in the barn that attracted the attention of Chloe fans everywhere. In this moment, which really gave us the first taste of Smallville coming to an end, Chloe tells Clark that she's leaving Smallville because her role in Clark's story of being the first person to believe in him has made her realize that her destiny is to find heroes for the purpose of helping them reach their true potential beyond the reach of Watchtower. And she has already helped a few, including a billionaire with high-tech toys. (laughs) 
a wondrous woman. Coming soon to NBC. Who's going to throw you for a loop. However, before you supporters of Chloe being a reporter get up in arms, it turns out that Chloe Inspiring Heroes is going to be her night job because she has developed an alter ego for herself as a reporter for the Star City Register. Finally, after Tess telling Emil to not give up on his singing and a videotape of the world's greatest bachelor party, revealing to everyone that things got a little saucy between the scientist and the Luther Corp executive, Chloe tries to slip away. But Oliver goes after her, realizing that she's leaving for good. Thankfully, before it looks like curtains for this relationship, I really did enjoy, Oliver admits that he knew that she wouldn't stay forever, and then shows her the other half of the wedding certificate, with his name on it. Yes, folks, they're married. And he figures that Chloe took a job in Star City, his hometown, so they'd be together. Then they kiss and walk off into the moonlight, with what should have been Oliver Queen's ending, but I think otherwise now because he's got that Omega tattoo on his forehead. So with that, Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode of Smallville? As you said, Dan, as a rule, I do not like these types of episodes where magic, colored kryptonite, or something else makes the characters not act like themselves. This episode was slightly better than previous episodes because it had more of a hangover feel and was funny in some moments. But overall, I felt this episode was a giant miss for me, especially for Allison Mack's farewell episode. The end of it was definitely better than the rest of it for that purpose, but ultimately it was a miss for me. Things I did like, though. The video at the end, though it was a giant hunk of cheddar cheese, yes, it was kind of like the photos at the end of the movie, The Hangover, which gave us a little glimpse into what really happened. Also interesting that Emil and Tess hooked up at the end of the episode, and it was... As you said, Chloe and Oliver, they got hitched and not Clark and Chloe. And now they ride off into the moonlight together. But I. Yeah, but does that mean the end of Oliver Green Arrow? Not according to IMDb, which says that he will be in the final four episodes when Smallville returns from its five week hiatus in March. Yeah. Five weeks? Five weeks. Talk about losing your thunder. Exactly. I was so surprised when I saw that. But yeah, Oliver will be in the final four seasons when we get back from that, and there will be five episodes to push to the finale. Uh, So Oliver will be in the last two and then the two-hour finale, Okay. if I'm reading the schedule right. He's credited in the other episode, but credited only, so I don't believe he makes an appearance. My verdict right now, this isn't the last one to see Chloe Sullivan. You think there's a surprise coming up? I think there's another scene. I think there's either going to be another scene or she's going to be in another episode because there's too much left open with Oliver for her not to be there to explain it, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense to me. I was thinking the same thing as they walked off into the moonlight, as you said, the end of the episode. It just didn't make sense because we saw the the Omega tattoo or Omega imprint on him, so... How are they going to resolve that without involving Chloe? Right. I have no idea. And the other thing is, the way that they did think was Chloe, like, her being a mentor for other heroes, like, Michael was watching it with me, and he kind of reacted to that, like, well, are they setting up a backdoor pilot here, or what? 
because that concept, leaving it that open for her, was a big surprise to us. That makes us feel like there's, there's something in the work. Because there is an unnamed television project that Allison Mack will potentially be working on. Hmm. And nobody knows what that is. So I don't know if they're going to go ahead with this Green Arrow spinoff, which has been rumored. I don't know. I have no idea. But I, I think, regardless, there's got to be one more scene with Chloe. There has to be, doesn't there? The thing of it is, like, if, if this is the episode that she's going to go out on, they should have done this first and reworked Beacon and Collateral, you know, around this one. Like, this episode should have been her second episode back. And then have the final be a bigger story. I think Beacon should have been her final episode, to be honest. Because yeah. that was the most monumentous of the four that she came back for. So, IMDB has Chloe Sullivan rumored for the next five episodes, four episodes. Okay. So, maybe we will see her again. Maybe something I happened, think they're or maybe they, kept us. It, maybe they kept it on her wraps like they kept Michael Rosenbaum coming back, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, who knows? Uh, um, the showrunners have said there will be big surprises in those last five episodes. Good. good. So, I don't think anything's off the table. That's what I'm going with. Mm-hmm. Again, if this is Chloe Sullivan's ending, there still are going to be stories about her somewhere. And I'm not just talking in the comics, in the DC Universe, and that. I'm saying that there will be some (laughs) format that they're going to continue the stories of this incarnation of Chloe Sullivan from Smallville because she is too popular to not. Yeah, I agree. And and I'm glad that the decision, the final endgame with her was to make her two things was to make her a hero, mentoring other heroes, and to make her a reporter too. So that, that both camps that have kind of been arguing about this, got both groups got what they wanted. They gave everyone essentially what they wanted. And that's great, and also Chloe didn't die. So they solved that little dilemma too. And that's something I'm proud to say that I was wrong about. Well, I was right there in the Chloe's got to die at the end of the series out with you, so yeah. I guess I'm wrong too. I'm glad. I mean, I I'm kind of happy about that, to be honest. Oh, um, I am. I am so happy that we were wrong. So, I mean, that was great. Uh, what did you think of the whole singing sequence with the meal and all that? When they were singing on stage, right yeah, before you got disturbed. No, why? Okay, I was just curious because I I just thought you would be like totally weirded out by that whole. Sequence no, too far outside. No, no, it was it was good. I was really surprised to see that they went that far with uh, Cassie Freeman as with her portrayal of Tess Mercer. Essentially, I think she's supposed to be good. the bad guy. Yeah, well, is she supposed to be the bad guy? Oh, I know she's supposed to be a bad guy, but I was surprised to see her let loose. They had her let loose as much as they did. That was well, more. She... Of, I think that was just more of yeah. letting Cassidy Freeman have some fun. I think you're right. I think she's on the road to redemption, man. So I yeah. think she's she's not good yet, but she's on the good side. Right. So it was weird yeah. in this episode. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I think she she's earned her place there. Yeah, but it was weird at this episode. It was more like we saw Cassidy Freeman herself in this episode than Tess Mercer. 
Okay. Because she has a band and she sings in real life and in interviews, she's kind of bubbly and upbeat. Right. And one of the reasons you and I had given her such grief earlier on in last season and the season before was that we didn't care for how she was portraying Tess Mercer or we just didn't like the Tess Mercer character. We didn't get why she was there. Yeah, exactly. And now this season, we've already said we were told we are totally wrong about her for this, you know, from this point on, she totally makes sense in the story for us and, and the acting, it, there's nothing we can complain about. She's I, I like her as a hero. Yes. Yes. I did not like her as a, a villain Lex. Right. Which is essentially what she felt like. You know, it's funny with this show. The characters that I don't like, once they become a supporter of Clark, I do I pull out total 180 on them. So they did it again for me with Tess Mercer and Chloe earlier on. So I give them props for doing the same trick twice with me. Uh, so that was really fun, and then Justin Hartley was absolutely hilarious at the end of this episode with the whole showgirl thing. It was. It was a great scene. I knew it was coming as soon as yeah. we saw the showgirls come on. I was like, "Are they gonna? Are they gonna do? Uh, Lois gonna be in it?" I I didn't necessarily think he was gonna go out as well, but that was that was the that was what made the scene. It yeah. made the whole scene, especially when he started fighting. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Well, they have always said that Justin Hartley is somewhat of a practical joker on set. So they really let him let loose with this humor. And again, I think that's what it was. It was just like, you know what? The show's going to end. We don't know what to do here. So why don't we just have some fun? Yeah. Again, I think they should have thought enough about the decision where to do Chloe's finale at. But again, I don't think we're done with her yet. Okay. So with that, we're going to move on to another show that had a, kind of the same kind of deal. Uh, it was really, I think it was fun, laid-back night on the CW on Friday. <coughs> and so we're going to move into a very fun, well-done episode of Supernatural that was a great follow-up to the episode where they were sucked into the TV last season. The episode, The French Mistake. On this episode, Raphael launches an attack, and Balthasar transports Sam and Dean to a parallel world where they are mistaken for two actors named Jared and Jensen, who star in a TV series called Supernatural, which is about two brothers who hunt monsters for a living. The Winchesters must cope with some familiar faces in different roles when they discover that Jared is married to an actress who looks like a demon Ruby, and Castiel resembles a tweet-happy actor named Misha Collins. Who was recently killed, and we want to give a moment of silence to him. All right, so with that, with heavy hearts, we're going to go into this week's episode of Supernatural. This week's Supernatural, just like this week's Smallville episode, was all about having fun, as Sam and Dean, while performing research at Bobby's place, is visited by the angel Bethazar. Surprised by the rogue angel's visit, the Winchesters ask what's going on, but Balthazar starts rummaging through Bobby's house, looking for ingredients about performing a spell, blabbing on and on about how Raphael is going after his enemies, like Michael Corleone, I can't say it, at the end of The Godfather. And the next thing we know, the two brothers are thrown into a parallel world where they've taken the place of the actors who play them on television. Jensen Ackles and Jared Paladucky. For whatever reason, our life is a TV show. 
Why? I don't know. No, seriously, why? Why would anybody want to watch our lives? Well, I mean, according to the interviewer, not very many people do. Yes, if you have been in a cave for the past few days when it comes to TV news, according to a variety of sources, including Entertainment Weekly, Variety Magazine, and Twitter, somehow Sam and Dean Winchester actually appeared on set in real life during the recent filming of an episode of Supernatural, as well as this weird murder of Misha Collins. And I guess things have gotten so out of hand with this murder and supposedly Sam and Dean showing up that the show may be facing cancellation due to a shortage of personnel, which the CW Network is referring to as a fiery creative dispute. So I guess you know what that means, ATA listeners. We need to spread the word to Facebook and Twitter for all of us to combine forces and save this show. That to make this possible, we are going to be having a live show. No, guys, we gotcha. We're just kidding. Supernatural is not in danger of cancellation. Because the place that Bathlazar sent Sam and Dean to is simply a variation of our world. Because the real-life longtime director, Robert Singer, was played in this episode by Brian Doyle Murray, the actual real-life brother of Ghostbusters actor Bill Murray. And even though actors played most of the Supernatural crew members, this episode still bombarded us with all sorts of Easter eggs and jokes pertaining to the real lives of Jared Paladecki and Jensen Ackles, as well as the behind-the-scenes production of Supernatural, as Sam and Dean try to learn more about their celebrity alter egos, including Dean having as much difficulty saying Jared Paladecki's name as Nico, and Dean making a quip about how Sam is now Polish. Jensen Ackles, and I'm something called a Jared Padalecki. So what, now you're Polish? Dean becoming sick to his stomach at the sight of the several actual Impalas that they use in production of the show. I'm going to be sick. Sam and Dean going inside of Jensen Ackles' trailer to discover that he owns a radio control helicopter. Dude, I have a helicopter. That was on the soap opera days of our lives. Again, Michael, who was watching this episode with me, kind of hoped that they would reference Jensen Ackles' time on Smallville, or have him bumped into someone from the show. But at least they made reference to the city where both shows are filmed, Vancouver, a location that ends up getting on Dean's nerves because everyone won't stop talking about hockey. Also, Sam and Dean's search to find answers about this parallel world causes them to run into Castiel, who turns out to be a tweet-happy actor named Misha Collins. By the way, as a cool side note, exactly one minute after the shows, Misha in this scene sent the tweet. Hola, Misha amigos. J squared got me good. Just want to dig my finger in my brain and scratch till we're back in Kansas. Really starting to feel like one of the guys. The real Misha sends this tweet to his followers. Realizing that they've had enough of this backwards world, where Dean is horrified by the fact that they put makeup on them. They put freaking makeup on us. Some bastards. The Winchester brothers decide to regroup in order to come up with a plan to escape this reality, which ends up leading them to Jared Paladecki's mansion. Nice modest dick, Jay-Z. Wow. I must be the star of this thing. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Now, with that being said, I'm pretty sure that this was not Jared Paladecki's real house because I don't think he would have gotten portraits of himself. That would have been just really weird. But the wife in the house was real because Genevieve Cortez, who played Ruby back in season four of Supernatural, is actually married to Jared Paladecki. Plus, even though I knew it was entirely fake, I thought it was pretty funny that the writer of this episode came up with the idea that Jared Paladecki has a pet camel, or I mean alpaca, in the backyard. Dude, you have a camel in your backyard. It's an alpaca, dumbass. Moving forward, Sam and Deeds plan to escape the parallel world. Don't like this universe, Sammy. We need to get out of this universe. Yeah, no argument here. Ends up causing them to max out Jared Paladecki's credit cards in order to get the ingredients they needed to perform Bethazar's spell. However, as the Winchester brothers arrive on set early to perform the spell, they are stopped by Robert Singer, the director who tells them they have three script pages to film. This then leads to a hilarious montage where Sam and Dean are forced to act. And let's just say that their performances are not good. Although the best part of this sequence was Robert Singer reacting to the brothers' incredibly bad acting. By saying, Season 6. And then shaking his head. Because it made me want to give a long-distance high-five to you, Nico, out of the Virgin Islands. Since it proved that even the television industry itself recognizes our theory that Season 6 is a challenge and sometimes the kiss of death for most TV shows. Speaking of the six-season slump, Robert Singer panicked about his two lead actors completely losing their marbles, calls his producer, Sarah Gamble, for help. And what we get here is a hilarious sequence where Robert begs her to send the show's original creator, Eric Kripke, to the set, effectively poking fun of us here at ATA and other Supernatural fans who have complained that Sarah Gamble has made the wrong decisions with this season of Supernatural and Eric Kripke needs to come in to get things back on track. Going back to this episode, Robert tries to fix things with who he believes to be Jensen and Jared on his own. But all that happens is Dean calls Robert a douchebag for naming himself after a character on the TV show that we know as Bobby Singer and giving a righteous speech about how he and Sam matter to their world as heroes. Unfortunately, the people behind the scenes of Supernatural discover that they have much more pressing matters to deal with than issues with their lead actors. Ever get that feeling? Someone's in the back seat. Frowny face. <laughs> As Virgil, an angel working with Raphael, appears on the set, blowing both Robert and the great Eric Kripke away with a shotgun and stabbing poor Misha Collins to death. No! On that note, at this part of the episode, it was hard to tell which Easter eggs and crew members of this episode were real or fake. And I'm hoping that in a couple days, there will be an article that we can post on our website signifying the difference between fiction and reality in this episode. But right now I can tell you that the Eric Kripke in this episode was played by an actor. But I think the one writer who was able to nonchalantly dodge one of Virgil's shotguns blast was actually the real writer of this episode, Ben Delund. And yes, Jared Paladecki and Jensen Ackles do talk to each other in real life. 
However, in making a long path cast short, even though Sam and Dean are in a world without magic, they still remain total badasses as they take down Virgil. But just as it looks like the Winchesters have gained the upper hand, Raphael appears on set. But before he can kill the brothers, Castiel, not to be confused with Misha Collins, arrives, teleporting Sam and Dean back to their world. Finally, in the last scene of the episode, where I thought things getting back to normal would cause Castiel to give us a revelation about the civil war going on in heaven, we end up getting nothing, leaving Dean to complain about those freaking angels. But hey, at least Sam and Dean are still talking to each other. So with that thought, Nico, and knowing that Misha Collins wasn't really harmed in this episode, what were your thoughts on Supernatural? Yeah, at first, it sort of felt like this episode was a giant middle finger to all the people who were complaining about the first half of the season. Yeah. But as I continued to watch, I realized it was more of a, hey, thanks for sticking with us through the rough patch of the beginning of the season, and we're going to make fun of ourselves a little as a means of saying thanks to the true fans. Right. Thus, I actually like this episode, but at least they're talking, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, we're the whole idea, too. yeah, the whole idea of them breaking the fourth wall and coming out of the TV and living in our world was an interesting way to go. Similar, yet different, from the Trickster episode where they kept living their lives as different types of TV shows back in season four or five. Right. But as I said, I actually liked this idea, and it felt like it was a good change of pace episode that should line us up for the next next week's episode where Sam and Dean finally start going after the mother of all and her monsters before the hiatus until April 15th, which by my count is same as Smallville five week hiatus. By the way, can I tell you something? Can I tell you something about this next? So I'm just so excited. I have to say it. We called next week's episode. Yeah, we did. We did. We did. It's basically what we got is Bobby going up against Samuel uh-huh. And we get the Bobby Rufus team up that we called for, too. Exactly. It's like they're listening to our podcast and rewriting the season. <laughs> well, especially with this episode, that one scene where he goes, oh, you know, maybe we should call Eric Kripke. Maybe he could get the show back on track. Yeah. He's like, we said that. Yeah, but unfortunately, we're not the only ones. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so, probably true. But it's yeah, good to know I'm- we're on the right track. Yeah, you know, we and a bunch of the fans, you've been there from the beginning, I've been there for the last year, but I've seen every episode. We, you know, we know what's going on and what what we thought could fix it, and it seems like the showrunners and people involved with the show have agreed because everything that we complained about in the first seven, eight, nine episodes of this season have been resolved in the second half. Right. And so that's a great thing. The only thing I'm worried about is both of our our shows on the CW taking this five-week hiatus, that's going to kill any momentum that they've started. And these next two weeks, or next episode, uh, one episode for each show next week are going to be crucial. they got to have a good cliffhanger at the end for us to be... Supernatural, especially. Yes, that for us to be gung ho yeah. about being back here in five weeks to continue watching for the rest of the season, because if they don't, this could be the last five episodes of 
the series, you know, because if it lose all, all momentum, it could be done. And obviously it is that way for Smallville, but that's planned. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this right now. I know we want to talk about Supernatural here, but I'm concerned about the future of this podcast as well. Because right now, as it seems, Fringe is in 50-50 danger of getting canceled, as well as Supernatural. So that's two down right there. Bones, after the Hannah scenario, is on the fence as well. I think they have a better shot of getting renewed. Yeah, but Chuck is always on the cutting block. Yeah, Chuck, of course, is on the cutting block. So out of these shows that we cover, that all of you are watching this show and being really great at supporting us, we might not have any of these to cover. And we don't want to lose you as our audience. So please do whatever you can support these shows and show that you love them. Especially Supernatural. I mean, Jensen Ackles is such a great actor. Like, support this guy. And Joshua Jackson and John Noble and everybody who at Fridge. Oh my gosh. Great actor. John Noble should win an Emmy five times over for his performance at Dr. Bishop. So give that man your viewership. I mean, really, the shows we love need help right now. And you need to watch them. I don't care if you DVR them, go on Hulu, whatever. You need to watch them. Not download them. Not watch it on Mega Video or some silly place. Watch these shows. Give them ratings. Show these networks that we love these shows and that's what we're all about. And again, I know some of you out there are like, oh, I'm going to wait till the DVD comes out. Figure it out. Figure out a way to work around it because that's not enough for the networks. They're not listening to that. So please do that. And again, Supernatural, if you haven't been watching... It's turned around completely. This episode was a lot of fun. It showed that. So really, save these shows, please. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, Dan, because I totally agree uh, that we need to watch these shows. And if you can or you know somebody who's got a Nielsen box, tell them to put it on Fringe. Tell them to put it on Supernatural. One of those two in that time slot. Tell them to put it on Smallville and then Supernatural. And just leave it on. If, if they're not going to watch the shows, just fudge the numbers a little bit, because those shows need it. Uh, small though, a little less, because it's going off the air regardless. But, you know, Chuck is always on the cutting block, because NBC can't make up its mind on the fact that it's actually a great show. Castle is our probably our most solid show. Um, it's, it's coming back, for sure. That is yeah. a show that's coming back, for sure, next season. And we will be covering that on across the airways. I can Absolutely. guarantee you that. Bones, now that it's fixed, should be re- reviving its numbers. Yes. Uh, so it should be okay. But still, don't stop watching it. No. You know, so just watch the shows. We love them anyway, so watch them. Right. And know? again, if you're waiting for the DVD, turn it on in your house. And go in another room and put earmuffs on or something <laughs> so you don't hear it. Because if you want to keep watching this show on DVD, then you need to wa- keep the ratings up so there'll be more to watch on DVD. Mm-hmm. And again, Smallville, this is the deal, folks. Just because it's ending, that does not mean that there's not possibilities for a spinoff or a Chloe series or something like that. So... Them getting huge numbers for the finale and people really showing they still want it may give us future 
superhero programming on television. So that's an important aspect too. So they really need to get a big audience, especially for those final five episodes, to show the CW we still want these superheroes and sci-fi shows as well as Supernatural. Because they're, are, they are very easily, but they're very open to the notion of just making that network completely, totally for teenage girls and dumping everything that we love on that network. So please show your support for these shows. So was there anything else you wanted to say about Supernatural? I know we kind of went uh, off on a big soapbox. No, I think that that was everything I had in my book. Okay, honestly, with this episode of Supernatural, great episode, a lot of fun. Something that we needed because I think everyone kind of needed to lighten up when it came to the show. I think everyone's all kind of like tensed up when it comes to watching Supernatural. Um, I think that Sam having the soul thing kind of made tensions high with the writers as well as us as fans. So it was nice to have an episode that was just fun and just kind of let us lay back and relax and enjoy the show because we needed it. Everybody on all sides of the spectrum, we needed to episode where you just have fun and sit back and laugh and just kind of get away from our problems for a while. This is a vacation episode. Again, that's why I love the TV episode, the episode where they got sucked on the TV because we had all this big, heavy, doom and gloom apocalypse stuff. And that episode was just a nice, fun reprieve. And again, this did the same thing in a season that we really needed it. But now we're going to go full throttle into the drama. But now that Bobby is thrown into the mix with Samuel, I think that's going to get a lot more interesting very quickly because everybody loves Bobby Singer. The real one, not that fact director. No, just joking. (laughs) He's done some great work. So with that, I'm going to close up this episode. And, Nico, would you like to tell everyone what we've got coming down the line? Sure. Next week's episode, we're going to only be reviewing episodes of Chuck, Castle, Smallville, and Supernatural, because Fox is going on a little bit of a hiatus with both Bones and Fringe until March 10th for Bones and March 11th for Fringe. By the way, be sure to keep watching AcrossTheAirwaves.com for information on our live show for the Smallville series finale that we are in the process of developing. And also, just to put this out there to you right now, because I had no idea that that huge hiatus was coming for both Smallville and Supernatural, we may, I don't know if it's going to work out, but we may end up taking two weeks off of the show to prepare for our finale episode. Because Michael and I have a lot of plans, and I know Nico's got some things up his sleeve, and we're going to try to get you some really great guests for our episode. So we're going to take those two weeks if we get them to prepare for that event because it's just going to make it a lot better. So if you guys are just cool with not having to cross the airwaves for maybe two weeks, it may end up only being a week, so we can get that going. It's going to be well worth it. So be prepared for maybe an ATA hiatus on its way. But I'm telling you, once these new shows come back, we'll be right on top of things, and we're going to try to get as much as we can in the thick of things when it comes to Smallville, as well as saving some of these shows if they're going towards cancellation. Our summer programming might be starting a fight or a campaign to save Fringe or Supernatural or some of these other shows that we love. So stay tuned with that. And Nico, of course, with our TV news, will keep you updated on the status of these shows through our Facebook 
as well as our Twitter page. And Michael will probably be posting blog posts on our site if anything serious happens when it comes to cancellation. So please just keep an eye on your Twitter and stuff. We're going to let you know what you need to do to save these shows if they're in danger. By the way, speaking of the Twitter and Facebook, don't forget to check out our podcast segments on our Facebook and Twitter entitled Things Learned from How I Met Your Mother and Psych Thoughts. Also, if you want to discuss with us any of these great shows, your theories for the future, or your fears our favorite shows getting canceled, you can contact us by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can comment on our podcast, as well as send us an email at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also access our Twitter page, which is Across Airways. There's no the, just Across Airways. You can click the like button on our page to be a part of our Facebook page and get all the TV news and clips that Nico has added to that site. She's done a great job on. And also you can visit our YouTube channel, which is run by the great and well-known Michael J. Petty, who has posted a whole bunch of videos advertising ATA. I know he's got a new one on the way celebrating Lex Luthor or Michael Rosenbaum's return to Smallville. So keep an eye out for that. And also he's got all sorts of trailers for movies coming out this summer as well as TV shows. So check out all those videos. It's really great stuff. And he does a great job with that. And also, if you love his videos, comment on them. Show him your support. And also, if you want to, with any of your thoughts on our favorite shows, you can leave us a voicemail. Nico, what's that number? 773-809-3363. So with that, once again, for our Brain Chest member, Michael J. Petty, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rutschett. And until next week, we will catch you on the airways. And keep watching TV, everybody. Talk to you I later. was a hard-drinking sinner with blood on my hands. I was a hard-drinking sinner a gun in my hands. Drinking 40 pounds for dinner till I met a big man. And the man said, how do we do? How do we do? Now return to our regularly scheduled program.